Hello and welcome to the Farm Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock, Editor-in-Chief at Farm Forum. My guest today is Dr. Pamela Tenarts, Chief Science Officer at Medible. We're going to be talking today a little bit about decentralized clinical trials, and not just about DCTs themselves, but about the complex regulatory uh, and, and guidance environment around them, how that's changing recently, and um, w- what needs to happen in order for it not to be an impediment to uh, decentralized clinical trials. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Tenarts. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So just to start out to get to know you a little bit, tell me a little bit about your background um, and how you ended up at Medibon and, and what you do there. Great. Yeah, so thank you. Um, so my name is Pam Tenarts, and uh, I've been at Medibon for about two and a half years where I lead the science department. And um, what we do at Medibon is offer a platform that allows people to uh, conduct decentralized trials or trials with decentralized elements. So if you'd want to do e-consent or use ECOAs on a, on a phone, whether that's provisioned or BYOD, um, whether you want to use connected sensors in, in an effort to make trials easier for people to participate in, that's what Medible does. And at the science department, what we do is we provide um, um, sort of the evidence of the impact of DCTs to sort of make sure that, you know, what we all hope the promise of DCTs is, is actually happening with metrics. And then also, as you do new things, it comes with new workflows. So the way you used to set up a trial is a little different now. So we work with a lot of people like um, MRCT at Harvard, the Multi-Regional Clinical Trial Center at Harvard, to sort of create recommendations around how to submit um, a protocol that contains decentralized elements, and then what an IRB should think about when they evaluate those elements and make sure that you know the safety of the participant and their well-being is still maintained. Um, and before Medible, I was at the, that's probably relevant as well, and that's kind of how I got to Medible, is I was the executive director of the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, which is a public-private partnership between Duke University and the Food and Drug Administration to improve quality and efficiency of clinical trials. And I was there for about 10 years. And by way of background, I've been in clinical trials for a couple of decades now, and I'm a physician by training. Um, And pretty quickly after graduating, I had a practice for a while, kind of went into clinical trials, which back then almost nobody knew what they were. But now after COVID, people are a little bit more aware of why we need clinical trials. So we're here today to talk a little bit about the sort of complex forest of of regulatory guidelines and documents around decentralized clinical trials. You mentioned COVID, obviously. We went from sort of one to 100 in in terms of of the intensity and and the the number of of DCTs, but some of that um, regulatory environment around them still hasn't kind of settled out to something that everyone understands yet. So tell me a little bit about that situation and how it affects the work that you do and the work that uh, other, you know, clinical researchers and clinical trial administrators do. So yes, when, um, you know, when decentralized clinical trials, I mean, they've been in existence for a while. I mean, I think some of them had been conducted in 2010, 2011 uh, with the remote trial at Pfizer. Uh, was sort of the big first one that people have been thinking about. But if you think about that, that's like now a couple, like more than 10 years ago, right? That's almost 15 years ago. And so decentralization elements have been introduced. ECOAs have been introduced. Um, you know, um, e-consent, as I said, has been introduced over the years. With COVID, there was sort of this enormous uptick 
of uh, decentralization because of all the reasons we know people couldn't, you know, weren't allowed to leave their houses. People that were really sick probably shouldn't have been leaving their houses. And so how do you keep clinical trials going, especially sort of the ones that needed to keep going? FDA had come out with a guidance for ongoing trials during a pandemic that included a lot of flexibility to allow these decentralization elements to become part of the trial. And these were trials that were never meant to be using technology to keep going, right? But all of a sudden, it was like, yes, use Zoom if you have to do a, a visit. And then there were all these things that people were allowing for. Um, what really needs to happen for these things to become part of the fabric of regular trials is that there need to be, in a regulated environment, which is where we are, regulations need to be clear about what it is we need to be doing and sort of the expectations and, you know, sort of guidance around that. In the pandemic, we sort of had a couple, like I mentioned, the uh, um, the ongoing trials uh, guidance that the FDA had and EMA had a similar guidance, but they were both kind of explicit that these guidances were only gonna last as long as the public health emergency was active, which, you know, we all kind of knew there was a, a an end date on that. and. Being in a regulated environment and not really knowing what regulators think is really hard and really, you know, doesn't make it easy to conduct these trials with sort of a confidence that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. People were trying to do the right thing. Now, since then, um, and it started with the Danish um, medicines agency was sort of the first one to actually come out with a decentralized clinical trial guidance. Um, in Europe, and that was in December of 2020, the fall of 2021, might have been September, and they've already had a couple of new versions. But FDA and EMA really only came into this field with their sort of current draft thinking. Um, EMA released the recommendations paper in, in December of 22, and then FDA earlier this summer came out with a draft DCT guidance. And so then they're not the only ones. All of a sudden, there's guidances in Taiwan and in China and Australia and Swiss Medic came out, the Swiss came out with guidances as well. And what happens is that it's almost like too much of a good thing. It's great that people are putting their thoughts together and, and that really gives people sort of a way of how, how to operationalize this. What sometimes isn't helpful when you have all these many guidances from different places in the world, different cultures, different starting points with their laws and regulations to begin with is that those things don't quite align. And so, you know, clinical trials are global. We all know that now from COVID, you know, you have to do clinical trials everywhere. And what is a sponsor to do when there's all these different ways of, you know, e-consent in France is not possible. You have to do wet ink signature. So then how do you do remote consent with wet ink? So there's all these things that you need to adapt per country and that doesn't make for easy deployment of these things. The latest guidance that came out that is not a DCT specific guidance, but has elements of decentralization in, a, in it and actually says, you know, that the ICH E6R3, which is now the third revision of the GCP guidance that we've all been working on there. If you're in clinical trials, it's a good clinical practice. It's how to conduct the clinical trial well. Um, has come out, and there's also elements of decentralization in there. They actually say that the GCP guidance was more principle-based because they were aware that um, writing something very specific outdates it really quickly, and they wanted to go with principles that then sort of supersede 
new technologies coming or new ways of doing things coming because you need to be principle-based. And the one thing we all can do to help with this harmonization process um, is take an active role in all the comment periods that people have set up for these guidances because they're written. Um, they, you know, sometimes the sentences, you know, what you think you're saying is understood differently by people reading it. So we really all have a role and an opportunity to clarify things in these guidances and maybe highlight things that are different between the guidances so that maybe some of those things can come closer together. And so I think uh, we're talking here because of the least, latest uh, GCP guidance um, that, like I said, mentions some of the um, VCT elements and offers us an opportunity to comment. And that comment period is coming to a close for the U.S. Um, in the early September. So you still have a chance to respond. And different regions of the world, uh, ICH, clearly ICH, GCP, is um, all the regulatory agencies, many of the regulatory agencies coming together, and they each have different deadlines for comments. So if you're in Europe, you might have a different comment. I think the one in Canada is a, is a little bit later than the one in the, in the U.S., but if you go to your country's uh, regions, um, ICH GCP guidance, it'll tell you when the comment period is and gives you the opportunity to sort of uh, respond and clarify things. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> and and sort of went through several uh, places I want to go. But on, uh, so I want to talk more about the um, ICH E6 R3. But before we do, uh, generally speaking, what are some of the particular areas and situations where you see either conflict between guidelines or ambiguity um, that's you know not covered by guidelines? You talked a little bit about e-consent in France. Um, are there other things where it, it, particular areas where it's just like it would be nice to have more clarity about this or or more consistency with this? Um, yeah, some of the things that have come up is um, and as a principle. Um, oversight of um, PIs, PI oversight of clinical trials. So in the olden world, you know, where people came to the PI, principal investigators, to their research site, the PI clearly had an overview of what was happening at that site. Everything happened there. So it was kind of easy for, for him, her, to know what was going on and to kind of ensure that everything was done right. With decentralization, now elements of the clinical trial are away from the research sites. So how can an investigator be responsible for all of those things? And there's different nuances in how that's being brought up and how that's sort of being talked about in all of these different guidances. So that could be an issue. I think in the um, FDA guidance, there's mention of local healthcare providers, HCPs which is a new concept. I think some people were using that already. And that is the idea that if, you know, I used to work at Duke University. I didn't live there. I lived in Florida. But for example, if I was in a clinical trial at Duke University, normally you would have to go to, D to Duke to do all your visits. Now there's been increasingly an opportunity to use your local providers, your own doctors. Say it was an oncology trial and I had an oncologist in Florida. That oncologist in Florida can now be designated an HCP, a healthcare provider for the trial. And as long as they're conducting activities that are within their clinical um, responsibilities and sort of uh, practice, they can collect those, those data points. And the FDA suggested that those names and their credentials 
and their addresses, it's kind of a minimal list of what needs to be collected, should go on a new log that's called a task log. I think we all had the delegation log where the PI would delegate certain activities to to a sub-investigator or a research coordinator, and that would be clearly delineated. Those are all clinical trial activities. This collection of data is a... um, is within a scope of practice for somebody. So they don't, those people say my, hypothetically speaking here, the oncologist in Florida doesn't have to know the protocol, doesn't have to know the investigator for sure. They just have to say, for example, like maybe do a physical exam, which is what they do every day. And um, that is now talked about in the FDA guidance. EMA doesn't really make mention of that at all. So then it's kind of like, how do you operationalize that there? And is that even possible in Europe? And the ICH um, E6R3 also doesn't mention it. So there's little elements like that that kind of come up and you kind of might be wondering, how do I deploy that in different um, geographies in a way that is acceptable to the community of regulators? Got it. Yeah, that's really a, a good kind of succinct explanation. Moving over to the ICH, um, what are some of the things you're looking at there? What are the comments you you're you know likely to make? What what does it do well? What does it do do badly? Can I characterize this new document for me a little bit? So what I would say it does well is, and it's different than how it used to be, is that it really um, went to this principle based approach. So they have um, a different structure of the guidance now where, um, you know, there's an introduction and the introduction is really good. And then there's principles of GCP and the principles deal with things like ethical issues, you know, the right and well-being of participants, uh, what the consent form should be, what the consent process should be like, sort of the ethical principles. There's uh, sec- principles that deal with trials having to be scientifically sound and generate reliable results. That's actually the point of a clinical trial, right? First of all, you have to keep your participants safe. They're volunteers. They're signing up for this voluntarily. And the whole goal of it is to get reliable data so that people can make decisions based on those clinical trials, whether that's regulators for approval or clearances, whether that's physicians deciding whether this trial changes how they would treat a patient, or whether it's a patient deciding whether some treatment might work for them. Then there's um, there's a, a, a principle around the appropriate risk levels so that it needs to be proportionate. And then there's sort of this idea of principles around clinical trials should be well designed. Sort of they should be, there should be quality considerations, how the protocols should be done, who can conduct a clinical trial, like who's qualified, and sort of the roles and responsibilities. And and so the, so the principle is really good because it supersedes, as we mentioned earlier, the need for, um, they wanted this, these, the GCP guidance to stay relevant despite maybe changes in technology or methodology. So it's sort of future-proof. Yeah, a little future-proof because the old GCP guidance talked about paper. Well, the minute you start using computers, that kind of started being a little wonky, right? So it's kind of that stuff. Um, I think the other thing I like is sort of alignment, a, a better explained alignment between this ICH guidance guideline and E8. If you think about it broadly, E8 is about how to write a protocol, how to write a good protocol. 
if six is hard to conduct it well. So they kind of go hand in glove together. And I think that's really nice too. And it, they, it still cross-references with other ICH guidelines on data and things like that. And the other thing is that there is a recognition of newer approaches in clinical trials. Use, again, using the, the, the use of technology, but also creating a framework so that point of care clinical trials, where you do trials within healthcare settings, real world evidence clinical trials, all those things become less of a thing. They're just a new methodology and they're not sort of created in and of by themselves. And, the, and, and that's the example here too, that decentralized clinical trials are not recognized as a distinct trial type, but rather under the guidelines, it kind of allows innovative approaches to be used. And in this case, it happens to be decentralized trials. So those are the good things. I think that's a really good thing. Yeah. And, and anything that concerns you about it? Well, I think it's some of the sentences. Um, I think the, the biggest difference to me between, say, FDA was also very principle-based in their DCT guidance. EMA was a little more specific. And there's a really good webinar people might want to listen to that the Collaboratory did last Friday. Uh, where they had Carol Zarad from FDA, Martin Landry from the Good Clinical Trials Initiative, and Adrian Hernandez from Duke talk about these guidances. And they really went through some of the issues that people might want to think about. Um, but what they, um, what CARE explained is that, you know, ICH is a conglomerate of many, many regions. Some regions are very advanced in their clinical trial understanding, some may be a little bit less. And so you know, there's this tension between being principle-based and, and people also wanted to be stay really in, in the weeds on certain things. And so I think that that is what you can read in this guidance a little bit, that there's, you know, it kind of jumps up and down, in my opinion, a little bit like it stays principle-based, but then on some sections, you can see that they went really, really specific. I should have asked this earlier, but for folks who are maybe not as familiar with the ICH, what is the kind of nature of the group and, and what sort of enforcement power does it have, you know, as an international body? Um, so the ICH is a, um, the International Council of Harmonization is uh, regulators that have come together that said, if you're going to submit uh, clinical trials, drug or, or biologics, so it's not medical devices, it's really on the drug side and the biologic side. Um, to our regulators, if you follow these principles, we will all accept them. It's sort of like if you follow these regular these things, we will accept them. It's a guideline. And then what happens is it's written as an ICH guideline. And then the FDA, for example, pulls it down and makes it a guidance that the FDA will enforce. So there is some enforceability around that. Yeah, like different countries in Europe will pull it down as their own guidances. And so then it becomes whatever their local ways of dealing with those things, whether that becomes a guidance or a law or, or whatever it is. So there is some enforcement behind it. And it's sort of really trying to create a structure that if you follow these things, we will all accept it, presuming you do it right. So you mentioned that it sort of is, is principle-based in order to, to make it less specific to the technologies that exist now. Um, so one thing that comes to mind, obviously, is is AI and its its ability to kind of change everything that it touches pretty radically. Uh, you know, do do you feel like how 
I, I guess when you think about like quote unquote future proofing, you know, does this guidance help to address questions about AI, about, you know, like data handling? Um, is there anything about that? Is it more about the kind of administration of the trials itself? I actually don't know if artificial, that's a good question, comes up in this guidance. I can't recall it off the bat, but I'll take a look at that. I'll actually do a search and find for it. Uh, I don't think that particularly came up, but it's really a way to future-proof um, different things. What I did mention is like there's an annex right now that is part of this delivery of the guidelines, so to speak. There's a new annex coming up that still has to be written that is um, include additional considerations um, about how GCP can be applied to a different variety of clinical trials. But, and data sources, but it's kind of like, it'll talk more about, it'll go in a little bit deeper into decentralized elements. It'll talk also about pragmatic trials. So, and then it'll also talk about real world evidence type trials. So AI doesn't really play necessarily, and I could be completely wrong on this, but um, I don't feel like I saw the word AI in this at all. Um. So, so that's part of why the comment period is so important is, is there is more to come and, and people have the opportunity to tell ICH what they'd like to see addressed, right? Right. Either what they'd like to see changed in this guidance, because they're really looking for potentially rewording something. This is draft and it's not final yet, right? So they're really looking like, can we clarify something? Is there something that is a clear uh, contradiction to something somewhere else or somebody perceives it to be, right? Uh, so that they, they can actually rewrite and they they read these comments, all of them. Like I've been in meetings where they, they've gone through these comments. They take them very seriously. They also look at the frequency of comments, right? Like if one section has, everybody says something about this one section, that may be give them pause and maybe give them a, a way to kind of go like, oh, and maybe we, People didn't understand what we were trying to say or what we were trying to say didn't make sense or whatever the thing is. So they take these uh, very seriously. But yeah, commenting is really important. When um, we looked at the comments earlier last week and what we found was that um, a lot of the comments, the commenting period, it's hard to know where FDA was in their comment period if you think about a three-month timeline versus ICHE6 are three commenting in the U.S. region. But there were last week eight comments for ICHE6. And I think the total uh, comments for um, the FDA, FDA guidelines were more than 100. Now, mind you, most people submit them very last minute. This is sort of like people keep thinking about it uh, and they submit them. Uh, there were 82 on the FDA guidance and eight when I looked last week on the ICHE6. So there's a different, a clear difference in the number of comments, but there's definitely elements in here that people might want to take a look at. And as we get towards the end of our time, what are some things in particular you'd, you'd say, you know, if folks are going to go comment that they should weigh in on or they should take a look at from your perspective? So I think looking at the principles and making sure they make sense is a good thing. There is a, a big section on data that is new to ICH E6R3 that people might want to take a look at as well. Um, and just going through things and making sure that they understand something. And if they don't, maybe ask for clarifications or, you know, things like that. 
I mean, it's a, it's beefy. It's 79 pages, I think. It's not, you know. As these things often are. <laughs> yeah. Um, any final thoughts, either kind of thoughts about where where this industry is going and or needs to go, or just advice for for folks that are, you know, working in this space and maybe trying to do more decentralized trials or or, or update their trial operation to be sort of more in the in the current era <laughs> technologically. So I think one of the things I'd say is that I think we're going to move away from the term decentralized trials and it's going to become more like we're doing trials and we're using technology. I mean, I always think back of when boarding passes first started coming up on your phone, right? You could download a boarding pass on your phone. And in the beginning, you know, you would say, I have a paper boarding pass or it's on my phone. And now you just say boarding pass and it doesn't matter if you're using the phone version or you've printed it. So you kind of walk away from, oh, this is different. And it just becomes part of daily life. I think that's how decentralized elements will become part of daily life in clinical trial. The one thing I see HE6 talks about a lot is fit for purpose. And I think that's really important. It's not like some, some formula that you can apply on every single trial all the time. You really need to think about what is, what is the uh, therapeutic area who are the participants? Uh, what am I trying to accomplish? And use the elements that make sense for your trial. But I think it's going to become sort of this, oh, it's just how we do things. Um, the um, other part I'd say is that if we want decentralized elements to become more part of things, I think we as a community, as a clinical trial enterprise, need to do more about collecting metrics and sharing metrics of what the actual impact is. And that's a big part of, of the medical science department is, you know, we all have hopes, right? We hope it's going to improve protocol performance, you know, shorter trials, you get your, your participants can participate faster. It's easier on them. They stay in the trial. You get your results faster, sort of those kind of things. But also the hope of, we can reach more people that actually look like the people living with the disease, not just the people that can participate in a clinical trial. And I think if we want these elements to become part of the regular fabric of clinical trials, we all need to do our part and share the evidence of what it actually does. And if there's going to be something at some point that's not going to work as well or doesn't work exactly the way we think it does, like whatever does in life work exactly the way you think it should. It kind of never does. So I think we have the regulators have the responsibility to sort of create some guidances as a community. I think our responsibility is to share some of the impact of those things, because if they don't work well, regulators shouldn't advise us to do it either. Right. But it's kind of the symbiotic relationship we have to do. Like we all have to do our part. And I, I strongly believe that our part is to show the evidence around things good, bad, or indifferent, and hopefully more good than the other two, but, you know, yeah. A oh, great note to end on. Thank you so much, uh, Pam. It's It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, I hope folks will check that guidance out and, and weigh in. Uh, make your voice heard while you have the opportunity. We'll try to get this podcast up fast enough that it's still an option. <laughs> Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You're taking the time to talk about this. I think it's it's exciting all these things are coming out and it's also exciting that you actually have a role and an opportunity to shape some of this. Absolutely. Thank you so much. 
That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening. Thank you.